Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephen Sadman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also the director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm episodes drop every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Each week, I will be talking to one of our four co-hosts, Aaron Gibbs von Braunschott, Vanessa Kimball, Lena Tamsetto, and Arthur Wilczynski. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today, our co-host is Lena Tamsito. She is at McMaster University. One was the first postdoc for the CDSN. How are you doing, Lena? I'm well, Steve. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. We had a really good midterm conference uh, last week. It, we celebrated halfway through the Shirk Grant, and we had a report to Shirk what we accomplished over three and a half years. So. I decided to bring together many of the co-directors and other folks to to talk about it. And we missed you. We brought together the three people who were postdocs. Lena, can you explain to our audience what a postdoc is and what you did for your year hanging out with the CDSN? I want to apologize again to you and to everyone at CDSN for missing yet another event. I had just got home from Simbers Forum, the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research Forum out in Halifax, and I just needed to, to get home. I've been doing quite a bit of travel. So I was the first CDSN uh, postdoc back in 2020, just as the pandemic hit. Um, I was fortunate enough to work with Dr. Stephanie Vomaki at uh, Queen's University, and it was a bit of a, a, a different take on the work that I've done in the past time. Uh, a clinician by training, and I started doing some work around mentorship um, and mentorship in the Canadian Armed Forces. And I have some interest in in women's experiences. So uh, Stephanie and I were able to put together an application and got support through you folks. And so I spent the year learning about what uh, mentorship looks like for women in the Canadian Armed Forces. And then with everyone's help, was able to develop a mentorship program, which has really seemed to taken a life of its own. That's um, the work that I presented at the, the midterm conference last week. Um, and it was great to be able to share some of that to people who um, weren't aware of the work that I've been doing and to see you know, Thomas and uh, Joanne, Joanna's work as well. So you say you've built a mentorship program. What does that mean? So... I looked at, you know, the literature and what the literature has said about mentorship for women in militaries, you know, across the five eyes and, and some other countries as well. Uh, I conducted interviews with people within the military, um, as well as veterans, people who've identified as being experts in mentorship with specific populations. And in this case, it, I was interested in people under, talking about mentorship with women. And then went through a process where I put all the information together and then created a framework, which is you know, a set of guidelines and how mentorship should look like. And then was able to get a targeted engagement grant through Minds to run a validation study after my postdoc finished to get some more input from people. So it's a pretty decent program, I think, that outlines sort of the important ingredients of what mentorship should look like. You know what um, environmental conditions are required to make it successful. Mm -hmm. I created worksheets for people to use, um, and hopefully, it might be adapted in some capacity or another to to help with mentorship. So you're now working in somebody else's lab at McMaster. I am. I'm working with uh, Dr. Margaret McKinnon. And so, do you feel as if you're being mentored by her? Do you feel as if you're mentoring somebody, uh, folks below you? How? How does it feel to be part of the turtles all the way down, mentors and mentories all the way down process now that you've studied it? It's really interesting because I'm able to get, I guess, a bird's eye view of the relationships that I'm in. I've definitely been well-supported and mentored by Dr. McKinnon. And there are some more junior research folks in the lab that I've been able to, to support. Uh, what's been interesting about the mentoring work that I 
did during my postdoc is that a lot of unexpected information came out. And I actually presented some work that came out of the postdoc on mentorship and how mentorship is being used to support women who've experienced military sexual misconduct. And military sexual misconduct and, and trauma is the work that I really focus in on at, with Dr. McKinnon's lab. So it was an, an interesting take on how mentorship is being used. And that was the work that I actually presented at Simver. I should note that Simver is one of the partners of the CDSN based at Queens, it is really the one of the first major networks that, it, and it's it's really taken off in terms of helping with military veterans' health and the fa- health of families, and it's uh, it's an incredible network. So, do you now that you know more about mentoring? Whenever Margaret McKinnon is mentoring you, do you kind of look at her and go, "I know what you're doing, and I know why you're doing it." I do. I actually <laughs> call her out on it. So one of the, I do. It's it's really funny. The the things that I really focused on in my understanding of mentorship within the Canadian Armed Forces is around the the two main functions of mentorship. One is to really help propel someone's career, but also the sort of psychosocial development that's required to be successful in whatever occupation you're in. Um, And there are often times when uh, Margaret will, you know, say or do things and I'll be like, you know, call her out and, you know, thank her and commend her for her um, actual attention on these functions of mentorship. And because of those experiences and with, you know, some of my other mentors that I've had in, in my, my journey, namely uh, Dr. Heidi Cram and uh, Dr. Deb Norris mm-hmm. and Dr. Alan English, uh, I've really been able to appreciate and learn from them. And then hopefully, you know, me becoming a, a mentor for some other students, it'll sort of filter down. Now that we've talked about you and your mentoring, we should go on and talk about uh, the mentor of Ontario. Oh, yes. <laughs> Doug yes. Uh, as we both live in Ontario, but you live out, you know, in Toronto, right? So I live just outside of Toronto, and I have a an interesting perspective on everything that had happened in Ottawa with the, the Freedom Convoy, uh, particularly from the policing perspective. So mm. for those who who don't know I come from a policing family my spouse is a a member of the Toronto Police Service and has been for many years so when things like this that really bring policing into sort of the forefront of any story I have a a personal interest in it so what I've been finding interesting is the premier has been asked to I guess participate in the public order emergency commission which he has declined which again you know, Steve, you and I have talked about this in the past. This isn't really my area of expertise, but I do have sort of a, you know, a, an Ontario citizen and a, you know, policing family perspective mm. and take on this. So I guess my first question to you is, is this typical that politicians such as, you know, someone as, as the premier is, I guess, hiding behind parliamentary privilege? I think that that's a really interesting question and i would say that many politicians when they have any kind of way to shield themselves from accountability will will do so so doug ford has been asked to testify before this inquiry into you call it the freedom convoy i call it the extremist occupation which is uh, more appropriate it's interesting you know i don't live in downtown ottawa so i wasn't as, as scarred as the people who lived in downtown ottawa but i did i did spend the, the, the entire time fairly irate about what was happening to my town and anyway so doug ford's been asked to t- testify i'm pretty almost everybody else has been pretty willing to testify today they actually we're taping this on tuesday november 1st the day after halloween and i guess the trick-or-treat we're getting right now is that the organizers of the occupation are actually testifying about what their objectives were, what they were trying to do, and all the rest. And they're saying, we weren't doing politics. It's like, you're doing public protest about public policy. So you're yes. political. Yes. And, and this is a theme I'm going to come back to again and again today about what is political. And so we've had this inquiry going on for several weeks. Apparently, the prime minister has already testified to it. We've had the cop uh, who, the head of the, the Ottawa police Peter force slowly. testify. Slowly was testifying the yeah. last couple days. The guy who replaced him testified. We've had members of the community testify about the harm that was done to them and on and on. And so Doug Ford is claiming two things, that this inquiry is about what the the, the decision invoked the Emergency Act, which is a federal decision. So therefore, it's not a Correct. financial matter. Right. But the question I have is, wouldn't they want to know the factors leading up to the decisions to enact the Emergencies Act? So 
related to policing, which I believe is a provincial issue. Yeah, the, that's just the start of it, right? Because there's that. There's, you know, for, in my mind, why was the emergency? What was the emergency? And in, in my mind, the emergency was the provinces, not just Ontario, but also Alberta at the time, were not willing to do their job. That because Doug Ford did not exercise leadership and did not get the province to do more and provide more support and more organization, maybe take the lead in Ottawa, that's why the feds had to come in. And so to say it's not a provincial matter, well, hell yes, it was. And if you want to deny it, it's a provincial matter, please come to the inquiry and explain to the inquiry why the province had was not responsible for a, you know, a, a major outbreak of social unrest in the province. It, this was not something that was happening in Quebec. It was not something that was happening mm-hmm. in Alberta. It, well, it was happening in Alberta, but it was happening in Ontario, his territory. And even if it was a combined federal local responsibility, the province has some role here. Right. And he has to account for why he chose to minimize the role of the province in all of this back then and now. So he, he should be held accountable for it. He should be responding to it. So that's the first thing. And, and now I'll get to my second hobby horse, which is your spouse is a, a police person. And so maybe you'll disagree with me on this, but in the field of civil military relations, which is what I study, right. um, one of the basic foundational understandings of war, thanks to Clausewitz, is that all war is politics by their means. That is, anything you do in, in conflict has political ramifications, and politics goes into making every decision, even if it's just, well, should I take this hill or that hill? And for me, when I understand politics, what is politics? Public Politics is the making of decisions that affect the public, which means that policing is inherently political. To say that policing is not political is to deny the reality that there are choices being made about who gets, who do, does the policing, who gets to be policed, what laws are enforced, what laws are not enforced, where the police are, are, are stationed at any given moment in time, on and on and on. So to say that policing is not a political matter, which is what Doug Ford has also said, it's not a political matter, it's not my fault. That's patently untrue in this circumstance, and it's patently untrue in every circumstance. And one of the things that really puzzled me about this. Again, I'm not a police person. I don't have any background in police. You know, I don't have a background studying police. But one of the things that was astonishing to me was in the course of what happened last winter was this notion that all police decisions are supposed to be made by police. There's a range, and this is something that's going goes on in other places too. It's not just a Canadian thing, but it's especially a Canadian thing, where the police are to make their decisions and for politicians to say anything or to try to push the police to do something is to politicize the police. And that's a problem because they're already, they come that way. They're already pre-politicized because they are people who are armed by the state to enact the laws of the state against the citizens of the state. How is that not political? And so the question then becomes, who is overseeing this stuff? Ottawa, my answer usually is damned if I know, because, you know, one of the late, more recent controversies was that the council of people who've been assigned the role of picking the head of the Ottawa police decided to do that a few days before the municipal election we had last week. And while this inquiry is going on, and it might have made sense to actually get the results of the inquiry, have the new people in power in Ottawa who then get to assign the people who are on the committee who chooses the, the police captain to be in place to make that decision. So I am of the fundamental belief that there's no civilian control of the police in Ottawa or maybe in Ontario, and I'm not so sure that exists in Canada. I find the second point that you're raising around politics and the police really fascinating. So when I was talking to my partner about the topics that you and I would be discussing today, I mentioned this situation, this topic, and I got a big eye roll and a, you shouldn't yeah. be political. It's why, why are you getting political about this? You know what? I would wonder if I really wonder, like, what is it about? And again, this is really outside of my scope, but I'm just coming at this as as a civilian, as someone who is just sort of adjacent to the policing community. But I thought that it was a very interesting response to me speaking about this topic today with you is that why are you politicizing this? And I said, it's all political. And I couldn't understand why. So I appreciate your explanation. Because again, this is really outside my scope. But it is it is fascinating because every response that I've read around Doug Ford's refusal to participate is that it's it was a policing matter and not political. Therefore, I won't participate. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm wondering, because again, this is outside my scope. What could the Ontario government have they done at the time, you know, in January? What could they have done? What what powers did they have? What steps could they have taken to prevent the Emergencies Act from coming to fruition? Well, that's a good question. And I honestly, again, I'm not an expert here on this either, but I would think that A, they could have sent more cops from outside of right. Ottawa. I think they could have maybe insisted on and putting their people in charge of the planning, since it was very clear that the folks in Ottawa had no clue how to organize and respond to this event. I mean, that's what we're seeing from the inquiry itself. But we knew that last year, last last winter, that the local cops had no clue as to, to how to how to handle this thing. So you would think that the Ontario police forces would have more experience with large scale protests, since they've had large scale protests in places like Toronto in response to the G7 and other things. Absolutely you would think that they would have more expertise on this and they could have let their expertise, they could have played more of an advisory role perhaps. They certainly could have flooded the zone with more more cops because it was very clear that the cops in Ottawa didn't have enough people and didn't have enough reliable people. So they could have done more, but it was very clear that whatever the, the authorities and capacities the provincial police have, they weren't being deployed in, in no way did Doug Ford, as the leader of the, the province, exercise any leadership or involvement in any of this. And so he's repeating that now. His, his role during the inquiry is like, it's not my job. And it wasn't my job. And I think that attitude speaks a lot. And it's kind of consistent with other things that Doug has done. But particularly with this, I fundamentally believe that the emergency was that those folks who had the capability to intervene we're choosing not to. And now it could be because Doug Ford is lazy. It could be because Doug Ford didn't think it was his job because he's a very minimal idea of what government is. It could be he didn't want to alienate the constituencies on his right flank because if he took a strong stand in this, then those those vote those voters who might be likely to vote for him might sit out the election that happened in June. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have no idea what was motivating them, but it was it seems clear to me anyway that there could have been more done. And his refusal to do stuff is something we should be asking questions about now. I think as an extension, I can't help but sort of comment on this being a mental health practitioner, is that the failure for of the province to bring forward additional resources, you know, will have tremendous impact on those officers that were essentially stranded at the front line for whatever that time period was before help sort of came in, you know, and I can't help but sort of wonder to look at things as also, you know, a health and well-being issue that, you know, this is goes beyond, in addition to, I guess is a better way of saying it, in addition to, you know, public safety and sort of those, those big picture issues is that the impact on the individuals who were stranded in the front line because of the system failure of the province not providing additional supports. And I really think that, you know, there are so many layers to this and I can't help but sort of, you know, point out that, you know, individuals that were there, you know, in addition to the the mental health and well-being of the citizens of Ottawa, I can't help while watching those newscasts of, you know, the verbal abuse, the shoving, everything that the, the frontline officers were experiencing during this time. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's the thing that stuck closest to me as I was watching this, you know, from, from afar. Hi. Well, so we've failed to respond in the past, and so that leads to a segue to the next topic, which is that there has been much discussion lately about a potential Haiti mission. That is that that Haiti has been un- undergoing domestic disturbances that have been making it very difficult for for the government to perform and make it very hard for the people to get food, medicine, and all the rest that they need. So as you've been watching this, uh, what is your take on on what we should do and and what what potential does this have? As everyone knows, I am not. This is not my area of expertise. However, I have been following, you know, the issues that have been unraveling in Haiti since probably the summer, since the assassination of their their president and just unpacking, you know, the historical context, which has sort of led us to where we, we are. I know that there's been a lot of talk recently about bringing Canada in in a leadership role. So I understand that the U.S. are putting together some sort of United Nations resolution, and hopefully that'll be... I believe will be passed in the next couple of weeks to enact some sort of military intervention to help, I guess, calm things down in in Haiti. There's so much that's been going on 
from my understanding, gangs are running rampant and controlling much of the infrastructure in Haiti. There's a cholera outbreak, which I was really shocked to hear. And I realized that it sort of went back to the last time there was, yep. you know, a, a UN involvement in, in the country. So there seems to be a, a lot that's going on. And in terms of Canada's role, I really don't have an opinion. On one hand, I think, you know, us as a, as a nation has really close ties to Haiti, should be involved. On the other hand, I am wondering whether or not it is our place to be involved. So again, I'm just an outside observer who is interested in the topic and don't really have an informed, intelligent thing to say about this. Well, I think that the thing is, if there's a UN resolution, then we are being invited by the Haitian government. I think the should, you know, do we have authority kind of thing goes away. And it's more of a question of, can we make a difference? Can we handle the problem? And I worry a little bit about militaries going places to fight gangs or to deal with a gang threat. If we consider these gangs to be paramilitary organizations, pseudo rebel groups, then, you know, some more of the playbook that militaries have developed to deal with such things makes sense. But this is obviously really more of a, well, it's a policing problem more than a military problem. And it's a government capacity problem. The way it might make sense to me is that when NATO intervened in the Balkans, one of the key things that was part of its mission set, in fact, most of its mission set, was about creating a safe and secure environment in which all this other stuff could take place, this, this capacity building could take place. And that phrase has been burned in my head for 20 years. And so maybe sending American, Canadian, other troops to Haiti to create a secure environment, to be a sufficient enough threat to the gangs that it makes the gangs less of a threat to the government and less of a threat to people. So that way, then the government can develop the capacity that you can train Haitian police so you can build the Haitian justice system and do all the other stuff so that way the Haitian government can provide rule of law so that way we can then eventually leave. But if it's doing that, none of those changes, none of those reforms are a short-term thing. This is something that would take time, a lot of time. I'm not saying a year, I'm saying like 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I just don't know how much patience there is in the United States, in Canada, in the UN, in other countries that might send troops to hang out that, that long. Now, because we've had this pattern of, okay, Haiti has an earthquake, we go there, we help out, we leave. Right. He has uh, something else, and we go there, we help out, we leave, and the failure of the Haitian government to be able to do things on their own, you know, it's a, a lot of our fault, a lot, is, a lot of the fault of the United States and Canada and other countries because of how politics have played out in the Caribbean, you know, from the 1600s onwards, that the impoverishment of the country that has led to this lack of capability, you know, we kind of own, so that in some ways we do have a responsibility to, to help out. But on the other hand, it, this is going to take a lot of time and it's going to be mostly political stuff about developing the capacity of Haiti to handle it while the troops with the guns may be standing around to make sure that the gangs are not threatening the people. But again, this is not an easy mission and it's not a short mission. So I, I think that if we do it, we need to take seriously the fact that it's going to be an enduring effort at a time. Something long term. Yeah, it's a long term at a time where the Canadian military is short personnel. I did see a news clip where the CDS did indicate, from my understanding, that are limited to be able to do this. So what role would Canada have? Because you mentioned, you know, having the, the folks that are there, you know, that provide the security. But it sounds like it requires a lot more than just stamping out the, the gangs that are, are, are running the country, it seems that there needs to be some concerted effort in ensuring that there are systems set up. So who would who would do that? Is that something that the UN could support? Is that something that Canada has historically taken on? Well, the thing is, the UN is is not a does not have an army, does not have a large group of people who are you know like a FEMA to go in and and, and run it and fix a plan. Right, right. They require donations. So would the Canadians lead the effort, but mostly be at the headquarters and rely on other countries to handle the enforcement and the training? In previous efforts, UN peacekeepers in Haiti and elsewhere have engaged in their own abuses and have been partly responsible for the cholera epidemic that yes. is existing there. Yeah. So peacekeepers, whether they're Canadian or otherwise, are, are not a panacea, but I think we've also seen that Haiti left onto its own. It does not go very well. So it, it needs help. I think I think we just need to go with our eyes wide open and be 
patient about. Uh, there are some things that we can do quite straightforwardly, such as the Canadian troops or whoever's troops that we're commanding can run convoys to direct the fuel to the where right. they go, to provide yep. the drinking water, to do those things. That's fairly straightforward. It's the other stuff that gets more complicated. And just like policing is political, so is peacekeeping. So who do you help, you know, where do you direct the fuel? Who do you direct the fuel towards? Who do you direct the fuel away from? How do you deal with people who get in your way? How do you get people who try to steal your fuel? I mean, there's, it's just more complicated than, than it might be imagined. But on the other hand, the one thing I always insist upon is the, is the word spoken by the Canadian Bank Rush, which is if you choose to not to decide, you still have made a choice. If we choose not to get involved, that right. also has implications. So I think the government faces a tough decision on this. I do think that we should be involved. I just don't know how, how well it's going to go and how long it's going to last. Because mm-hmm. I believe they recently had sent a team to Haiti, Canada, the government of Canada has sent a team to sort of get us a better sense of what's required and what's going on. But I guess pending, you know, their findings and sort of seeing what's coming through the UN, I guess we'll find out within the next month, I think, about Canada's involvement. Yeah, well, it, they did. We're doing our homework to figure out what's needed, and, and, and mm-hmm. the military is going to be asked to come up with plans. But as we're always reminded, no plan survives contact with the adversary. Right. So we can figure out what what the possible scenarios are, and we might finally do that peacekeeping mission that this government has been avoiding for quite some time. It was a pleasure to talk to you today, Lena. So glad that your postdoc with us has turned into having you be a key part of the CDSN that it wasn't a fly-by-night thing that not only helped you with your research, but it got you into this whole mentoring thing. Uh, that I think it's that you're been great. It, that you're making a difference. And Thank you. I'm glad that you joined us on the on the podcast from time to time. And Thank you for having I, me. It's always great fun. Well, and the funny thing is, we were talking offline beforehand, but we still haven't met in person. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to seeing you at the year ahead, uh, where you're going to be joining us to celebrate the event. We're going to have several panels at the War Museum on December 9th. We're going to have one on the challenges and opportunities facing the CDSN, which you'll be participating in as we discuss the future of our podcast. We're going to have a panel on learning from Ukraine, Ukraine's success and Russia's failures. What can we learn uh, for Canada, uh, we're gonna have Sheena Greetens of the University of Texas uh, talk to us about what China is learning. Mike Day, who used to command the Canadian Special Operations Command, is gonna tell us what Canada should learn. Nina Tannenwald, who is from Brown University, is gonna tell us about the nuclear dynamics. She's written a lot on nuclear proliferation and nuclear crises. We're gonna have a panel on the state of Canadian civil-military relations, which is gonna involve J.C. Boucher of Calgary, Andrew Lane of the Canadian Forces College. Charlotte duval lentoine of CGAI and Alexandra Richards of Simon Fraser University, all presenting different analyses of Canadian public opinion to look at the sort of the gaps and convergence between the Canadian public and the Canadian Armed Forces. We have this big recruitment crisis, and one of the challenges is, is, is if the people don't understand the military or people are frustrated with the military, they may not be all that amenable to being recruited. Our third panel is organized by our partner, uh, Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security Canada on redefining national security, justice borders, and transnational movements. They organized a, a panel last year on Islamophobia and national security, and that was a really dynamic, interesting panel. So we're, we're expecting the same from them. So that's what we're doing, and we're going to have you for, for the event and also for the pre-event drinks and the post-event dinner so we can finally meet this mysterious mentor person. Oh, looking forward to it. This week on Battle Rhythm, we're doing something a little different. We're bringing back an a interview from the archives. Why? Because when I was at the Inter-University Seminar on Armed Forces and Society Canada, which is a group of scholars and defense scientists working all kinds of personnel and other kinds of challenges facing the Canadian Armed Forces and other militaries, I bumped into Major General Lise Bourgon. She is the Acting Chief of Personnel, and apparently soon going to be the Chief of Personnel without any acting attached to it. She's currently a Major General, and probably very soon a Lieutenant General. Well, Stemi Von Lackey, our former co-host, interviewed her almost two years ago to this day, to talk to her about her experience in the military. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get a chance to listen to that podcast again and, and listen to that interview, because General Bergon has a really healthy attitude towards risk and about careers and about the personnel crisis we're facing. I had, a, as I said, a short conversation with her, and I really found it informative, and I thought more people should hear from her. So we have this interview from 
our episode 37 that we're bringing back for season two, episode nine of Battle Rhythm. All right. Thanks again for hanging out with us. I look forward to talking Thanks, to you Steve. soon for the podcast and talking to you in real life. It'll be great to see you. Thank you. Today, our featured interview is with Brigadier General Lise Bourgon, who is the Canadian Visiting Defense Fellow at Queen's Centre for International and Defense Policy. Before that, General Bourgon was Chief of Operations at the Canada Joint Operational Command and Director General Operations at the Strategic Joint Staff. General Bourgon, first of all, it's wonderful to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you for setting aside some time to do this. I'm very grateful. We now have the opportunity to work directly together at Queen's, but it's been a bit different, obviously, because of COVID. So let me first ask, uh, how has your battle rhythm changed from CJOC to being a CIDP Visiting Defense Fellow at Queen's, but really mostly virtually? Well, uh, quite a bit to say, uh, actually, uh, going from working 12 hours plus every day, weekends often included, being responsible for all Canadian domestic and international operations, so about 25 missions throughout the world, 2,000 plus deployed CAF personnel to a move to an academic life. So really stuck in my basement because of COVID, you know, attending three courses. So yes, a bit of change here, but uh, surprising. It's it's still quite busy, just different busy, and I think I'm liking it a lot. And you've even gotten to know Kingston a little bit more, and you've taken a few dips in the lake and training for a triathlon and everything like that. So has your battle rhythm changed in that respect too? Oh my God, yes. So I have the chance to go and do something every day, physical fitness. So I'm going to go for a run after this podcast. But yeah, a long run, a long bike ride, and hopefully probably another two or three weeks to be able to swim in the lake because I, I don't intend on breaking the ice to go for a swim. So <laughs> hopefully the pools are going to open soon and I can replace my workout uh, inside. That's good. Let me ask you about your previous role before we get into what you're doing research on at, at Queen's. But your previous role was very focused on operations. Before that, you were also a joint task force commander for Op Impact. So I'd like to get a sense for where you think that the Canadian Armed Forces is having the most impact across all of the operations it is currently committed to. Well, it's a, it's a difficult question as the impacts are quite different on every operation. Like it ranges from strategic effects as simply being there on the ground, part of a coalition, to more tactical difference at the troop level, like which uh, ends on training. So when we look at our uh, EFP battle group in Latvia, clearly it has a deterrence effect and sends a clear NATO unity message. Even although they are doing a lot of training at the tactical level, the message there is more strategic. From up unifier mission in uh, Ukraine, which is transforming the structure and the training of the Ukrainian armed forces at the same time as providing hands-on training. However, I think that it's on the domestic front that the Canadian armed forces are having the biggest impact. Being there for Canadians in time of needs is really essential. And it's what we, the Canadian armed forces members, we value the most. I mean, we saw it last spring and throughout the summer and the LCTF in Ontario and the CHSLD in Quebec. The professionalism of our soldiers working hands in hands with the provincial medical organization to improve the condition on the ground was exceptional. I mean, the, the smiles and the dedication of our soldiers that you saw on TV was superb. So, and the same thing goes for hurricane or flood relief when it's time to do something for Canadian. So I think that making a real difference here in Canada, it, it's really what matters the most. That's interesting that you should say that because I was also wondering about the impact of COVID for operations abroad. Now, of course, COVID has had a huge impact on the Canadian Armed Forces because the CAF was called upon to respond domestically. But we're recording this podcast in the midst of the second wave of the pandemic. And I'm thinking back to the first wave. When the first wave hit, you were at CJOC, probably at the center of really important debates about how to adapt to COVID, how to adapt military operations to COVID. So what did you learn from that process? What did that look like for the personnel in the spring? Actually, you know, it, it was a zoo. Uh, it was a very 
crazy complex situation given the fluidity and the rapidity of all the changes. So in addition to all the changes that were happening in, in Canada and with the government of Canada policies, we also had to deal with OS Nation, with NATO coalition restrictions and, and guidelines. So honestly, we were trying to plan for a certain set of parameters, but the rules kept changing on us. Just as an example, uh, the team that was taking over for Up uh, Proteus, which is Canada's contribution to the Office of the United States Security Coordinator, helping the Palestinian Authority Security Forces. Mm -hmm. Well, they were on their day 12 out of day 14 of their isolation period in Trenton before their deployment. And Israel changed the procedures and mandated that all incoming forces had to quarantine and country upon arrival. So we had to rearrange all the flights. Uh, of course, we had to use RCAF assets because there was no commercial flights available. So we flew the team in and they had to add another 14 days of quarantine. So this, of course, had a ripple effects of delaying the team, do the return home flights, the isolation requirement, because those soldiers coming back from international also had to do a, a 14 days isolation before they could be reunited to their family. So it, it was a bit uh, crazy. The, the same thing happened, you might have seen it on the news, to more than 100 of um, our EFP soldiers. Like It was 10 o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call reporting that the entire flight that had just taken off might have been in contact with a commissioner in Trenton who had just been confirmed COVID positive. Like the flight was airborne in the middle of the Atlantic, touching down in Latvia two hours later. So we had to make a decision. So the aircraft landed in UK, everyone stayed on board. They refueled and they turned around, came back to Trenton, where again, all the soldiers had to restart their isolation period for another 14 days. So that was a lot of extra logistical work for CJOC as the operational headquarters, especially that we were also running at approximately 40% capacity due to our own COVID restriction in the building. Uh, one thing, though, that I really want to say is I'm, I'm super proud of the CAF, and I'm proud to report that COVID did not stop our operation. Like, we quickly ensured that our troops had access to adequate personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, and all that stuff. Uh, we adjusted our procedures, again, the rules about masks, distancing, the cleaning and the life, and, and life really continued. Our soldiers are super resilient and they're still out there in operation doing their job every day. It's very interesting. And, and of course, from the example you provided in, in Latvia, which I suppose was the shortest deployment ever, having to return, uh, not even having reached your destination, but also across operations, I imagine the types of military tasks that were routine for, for soldiers during their deployment may have shifted. So I'm wondering when we compare, I don't know, the uh, EFP deployment in, in Latvia to maybe the NATO mission in Iraq, did the nature of military tasks change on the ground or was it just business as usual, but with PPE and extra health guidelines put into place? Well, it, it honestly depended on each of the mission. Like I know that for the battle group in Latvia, it was pretty much the same routine, but with with different procedures because their role did not change that much. They were still on the ground. All the other nations were there. They were still training. They were still being a deterrent uh, force. For the NATO mission in Iraq and some of the forces on up impact, that, that was different because honestly, our allies, which we were doing training with, while well, they were busy responding to COVID and they were not available to do training. So that part was put a bit on hold while the, the, the you know, the, the really intense COVID period was happening. We could not be doing any training. So we flew some of those forces back home. And as soon as our allies, such as Jordan and Lebanon, were ready to restart, then we sent our CAF people back and they resumed operation. Okay, thank you for, for clarifying that. General Bourron, let's fast forward to the present and you are currently the, the Women, Peace and Security Champion for the CAF. And this has also been your area of focus as a Queen's visiting defense fellow. Can you tell us a bit more about this role, what it means to be the women peace and security champion for the CAF? Well, in my, in my current role as defense champion for the WPS agenda, my interest is focused 
first and foremost on making the CAF stronger and more effective in military operations. My role as a champion is very wide. I provide leadership advice and I support CAF effort in uh, institutionalizing diversity as an operational capability. And I promote diversity and inclusion as a core institutional values. So from a CAF D&D perspective, the WPS agenda is very broad. It's complex and interrelated. It includes diversity and inclusion, recruitment and retention, training and professional military education, the integration of a gender perspective in domestic and expeditionary operation, research, and finally, cooperation amongst uh, various departments and organizations such as allies, civil society, and NGOs. What I really want to accomplish, well, I want to accomplish so much. But honestly, what I want to do is I want to focus on cultural change. I show Canadian society that the CAF is indeed an employer of choice for women and, and men and minorities, of course. But sadly, right now, statistics are telling us that the majority of women do not see themselves in the CAF. And we need to change that. Like I am, you've met me, I'm five foot three, 125 pounds. I think I have a very normal IQ. I'm married with two balanced young adults. I mean, I had a great career as a pilot. I had some awesome command opportunities, deployed throughout the world, saw the world. And every day, well, almost every day, I love coming to work. So if I was able to do this, anyone can. So I want to be that example. I want to change that perception that women can't or are not welcome because they are. And there might be some some barriers, but that we don't necessarily see as well. And we'll get to that a little bit later, maybe when we talk about the LC initiative. But I want to relate the women, peace and security champion role that you have maybe to its origin, because even though 2020 has not been a great year, and there seems to be a pretty firm global consensus on that front, it's still the 20th anniversary of resolution 1325. So maybe that's something to to celebrate a resolution that was adopted by the UN Security Council to recognize the unique impact of armed conflict on women and girls. And you mentioned it too, to increase the participation of women and to incorporate a gender perspective in all UN operations and programs. And of course, I'm not doing the resolution justice here, the WPS agenda justice here, because there's several other resolutions which were adopted after the year 2000 under the banner of the, the WPS agenda. So let me transition and ask you to reflect back on the last 20 years and maybe comment on how you think that the whole women, peace and security agenda has changed the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, I think it's great that we're celebrating 20 years. It seems so long ago, but uh, I think we did a lot and there's still a lot to be uh, done. So from a Canadian perspective, UNSCR 1325 kickstart many, many initiatives. Like uh, Canada's National Action Plan was issued in 2010 and reissued again in 2017, establishing clear goals for Canada. Uh, It also dictated that all policies and programming were going to use gender-based analysis plus, so the GBA plus, to assess how a diverse group of uh, women, men, and gender diverse people may experience policies, programs, and initiatives a big one, again, was in 2016, our CDS General Vance issued directives on the institutional and the operational integration of uh, 1325 into CAF and our own operation. This has prompted a complete review of our training and education programs. It's has changed how we, uh, how we plan and execute operation. Like it's being taught at Staff College and at the Army Staff College where there's now gender annexes and there are steps to ensure that the human security aspect is looked at. We also created the gender advisor role, uh, a key advisor to the commander who is responsible in that team to really bring the human security perspective and also do a lot of the liaison with the civil organization and the civil society. Because again, understanding what is going on on the ground is often those NGOs and civil society that are very well connected. So that that relationship needs to be developed and uh, and 
and it's like a symbiotic relationship. Honestly, we need to better understand the, the needs on the ground so that we can do it. So that GenAd is that connection to the uh, NGOs. So we've done a lot. There's much more to be done. I mean, we, we need to look at increasing uh, the, the number of women in the military. That's probably the key one that we need to keep working on it. But right now, I would say that, you know, the last 20 years, uh, we've set a very, very solid foundation. And now we just have to continue to build on it. And you've also been involved with the LC initiative, and I'll let you explain to our listeners exactly what that is. But the real push is to increase the presence of women across UN operations. And you referred to earlier the importance of increasing the number of women in the King Armed Forces. And this specific initiative is about increasing the number of women across operations, so across UN member states. Can you tell us a bit about the LC initiative, but also tell us about maybe the operational consequences of increasing the number of women across peacekeeping operations? You know, as we just said, uh, 1325 released in October 2000, and one of the pillar of that UNSCR 1325 was the importance of the presence of uniform women on operation, both military and uh, police. But sadly, changes have been extremely slow. Uh, as an example, as the end of uh, 2017, only 4.4% of women were deployed with military and police contingents. On top of that, like 29 troop contributing uh, nation did not have women in their forces at all. So the LC initiative was launched in 2017 at the Vancouver Ministerial. Uh, and it's an exceptional program. I mean, it's many countries that are participating in, is, is being led by GAC, Global Affairs, but it has many other players, UN, uh, other uh, agencies, and true financial in incentive, uh, those troop contribution nations are encouraged to deploy gender strong units on UN peace operation. But it's more than a financial support. It also looks at the full spectrum of women meaningful participation in UN peace ops through research on receptive environment, selection process, uh, operational effectiveness, uh, just to name a few. Combined with the UN new uniform parity strategy guideline that was issued in 2019, we are already seeing a difference. Like between 17 and 20, women representation as military staff officer increased from 7.3% to 17.1%. So it, it's it's a huge increase. Uh, same thing for individual police officers. They went from 18% to uh, almost 29. And overall, uh, again, military and police contingents are up to 6.5. So 6.5, you might say, uh, that's not a lot, but you know, up from 4.4, uh, as I said earlier. So it's 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 good progress and, and, and we're going to get there. So we know that the presence of women in operation achieves a better integration with the society that we are here to help. Like women are good soldiers. They're as good as their, the, the men soldiers. But on top of that, women also have the capacity to reach more of the population than their male counterpart. I mean, we clearly saw that in Iraq and Afghanistan. From So from a security point of view, having women present on the ground and through the peace process uh, greatly increases our chance of success. And honestly, that's what the military is looking at, success on, on, their, on their operation. So the, it seems like the UN has been quite successful at increasing the number of women across operations. And there's different ways or different strategies that have contributed to that outcome. And, and certainly Elsie might be credited with some of those results. Do you have anything to add in terms of the Canadian Armed Forces situation? Could similar types of incentives be applied? Do we need to look more in terms of barriers for the recruitment, and, but also the deployment of, of women on operations? Are there any lessons to be learned from what has been going on in the UN context for Canada? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because CAF, uh, we just let a contract to do exactly that. So there's an independent company that's going to be going in and uh, doing a survey on our members, looking at the barriers that are left with the women and men serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. Like right now, we have about 13% of our women that are serving on operation, uh, but we need to understand why that number is not uh, higher. So in the next uh, few months, a survey will be done. We're looking at um, about 1,800 survey to be conducted on women and men uh, who have deployed or who have not deployed, because it's important 
important to understand why they have not deployed. And hopefully they'll be identifying the barriers that are left in the Canadian Armed Forces. We expect the report to be in in September of 21. And from there, we will look at those barriers and we will have programs to eliminate those barriers. And we're really exciting because that's one way that we can, again, do better because although we are doing very well in the Canadian Armed Forces, there's always a place for improvement. I will be tracking that that report uh, closely. I look forward to seeing what the what the results are, and of course, very interesting research being conducted in other countries uh, through the prism of the LC project. Again, uh, let me put my professor hat on now and and ask you how all of this, everything that you've been involved with, including your role as champion for women, peace, and security, has influenced your your research plans for this year at Queens. I've been the champion since 2017, but life was so busy in operation that I did not have a lot of time or effort to dedicate. So so this year for me is like a, a bonus. So um, my plan is really to use this year to really dig in and all the interconnected pieces of the WPS agenda, focusing on gender integration and inclusion, because we know the difference uh, between gender integration and inclusion. And slowly we're seeing that maybe the last 20 years the CAF was looking at integration, but we're going much closer into inclusion now. So that is an important piece. So my first paper will probably be, I'm still drafting it, my ideas and everything, will be on the CAF employment equity target of 25.1%. So where we are right now, where we need to be and how to get there, but focusing more on the recruiting aspect and hopefully some uh, good recommendation as how we go forward to keep on uh, doing a better job. Another project would be that I'm thinking is to assemble a best practice guide on gender integration slash inclusion into a military forces. Looking at all the different facade required, like from legislation, human resource policies, recruitment, retention, the training, education, equipment, health, harassment, sexual violence, family support programs, infrastructure, like all all these specific elements require steps to make sure that we have a successful integration. So I would like to uh, take all these concepts together and and come up with kind of a, a, a best practice guide on how any country that could decide tomorrow to uh, open for women how they could do it from scratch and learning from the um, the experience of all the other countries that went ahead of them. That's wonderful. It might even take you more than one year. Who knows? And you'll have to stay with us. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but after one year, you'll be eager to go back to your, your regular uh, job. But I think that the, the results of your work will be really interesting. And I, and I hope that at the very least, you'll agree to come back on Battle Rhythm to share some of your results and insights. I would love to. Thank you so much for, for this first interview on Battle Rhythm. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. I feel really privileged that uh, we get to interact with you this year at Queen's University. Obviously, I wish that we could see more of each other uh, and, and interact with the students as we normally would and host our events as we normally would, but this is not the case. So thank you for your involvement and your patience and your intellectual creativity as you've uh, taken on this, this role as a fellow. Thank you very much.